From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Now, I have a slight bone to pick with a man named Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was a brilliant man who understood the new media. Radio, meaning you do not see the picture, you hear the voice. And he spoke with the medium being the message, but he made one terrible mistake. He spoke of television as the cool medium. He coined the phrase, cool medium. He took the language of jazz, cool jazz, Miles Davis, warm jazz, Louis Armstrong. According to Marshall McLuhan, cool jazz is more cerebral. That is, you're more involved with it. You can listen to it harder. He couldn't be more wrong when he called television a cool medium. It isn't. It doesn't involve you, but radio holds you. The word couch potato was never heard before television. You never heard the word couch potato for radio because the audience was involved. I'll give you the best example. ReSound collects radio documentaries from around the world and brings them to you each week. For years, we've cultivated relationships with independent producers, little-known websites, and production companies in other countries to get docs that you just wouldn't hear if you didn't tune in. For example, today on ReSound, we have a world premiere. You are the very first people on the planet to hear this work by award-winning producer and longtime friend of ours, Alan Hall. And guess what? It's about one of Chicago's favorite sons. Oh, sure, Chicago's known for its deep-dish pizza, its dazzling architecture, its sparkling lakefront, and Al Capone. But Chicago's oral signature belongs only to one voice with an unmistakable style and sound, Studs Terkel. Studs has been chronicling American life for decades, and he's no stranger to the Third Coast Festival. In 2002, Studs received our Lifetime Achievement Award for his extensive work in radio. He's interviewed thousands of people, but in one interview, Studs can tell the story of thousands. As a Brit, producer Alan Hall has a little bit of an outsider's perspective of the Studs phenomenon, and even though you may think you know all the Studs there is to know, we think you'll be surprised by the end of the hour. This is Studs Terkel, The Last Touch, presented by Alan Hall. I, I happen to loathe Tony Blair even more than I do Bush and the others. I wasn't expecting this. I'd not even got the mic in place. What has happened to the British Labour Party of an Iron Bevan? The one that George Bernard Shaw thought about and Sidney and Beatrice Webb and, you know, Angela Lansbury, the actress... You know, our grandfather was George Lansbury. Oh, yes. The most beloved Labour MP of the East End. And there was a Labour Party. What is it now? Tony Blair. Unbelievable. How very Turkle-esque. Grant us grace to quarrel with the worship of success and power. Grant us grace to quarrel with a mass culture that tends not to satisfy but exploit the wants of people. Lord, grant us grace to quarrel with all that profanes and trivializes and separates men. A sacred treasure. That's how the novelist Margaret Atwood describes Studs Terkel. 
He's America's most eminent oral historian, a radio legend, and he's 93. When I visited Studs at home in Chicago in August 2005, he was supposed to be convalescing from open-heart surgery. But the man who's called a national resource doesn't know how to step back from the fray. Well, people call me that. Others call me something else. So where were we? Where were we? You know, if I don't hear you, you have to repeat it. Sure. Sure. I found on a website a description of you in six words. Gender, male. Ethnicity, white. Religion, atheist. Sexual well, change that to agnostic, because <laughs> okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure about anything. Sexual orientation, straight, occupation, author, level of fame. What's that? Level of fame. I like this. Somewhat. That's funny. That's very funny. Here now we all ask, children ask, and the Greeks ask and existential philosophers ask and every thoughtful person who am i where am i going what is death who is god why am i here how do you describe yourself a 93 year old battered survivor of the great american depression world war ii which only served stateside called limited service because perpetrated eardrum the Cold War days, McCarthy days, the blacklist, the 60s, which was a glorious time, I think. I loathe that phrase, the greatest generation, applied to World War II people. I was part of that generation. To call it the greatest is a put-down, of course, of the 60s, naturally. I think feminism was reborn in the 60s. The civil rights movement came into being in the 60s. The young people's opposition to a quagmire and obscenity called the Vietnam War was in the 60s. Uh, Homophobia was attacked for the first time head-on in the 60s. So that's just as great a general. Call it the greatest. Anyway, I hate the word greatest. Which is the greatest of all Rembrandts? Culture is the companion of social justice in Studs Terkel's universe. His books on the Depression, the world of work, war, death, faith, bring together the experiences of the great and the good with the unknown and the modest. And each is treated with equal respect. The same is true of his radio programmes. These extracts come from his award-winning 1965 documentary about the cultural and psychological fallout from the bombing of Hiroshima. With Turkelesque optimism, it's called born to live. We've already heard the Reverend William Sloan Coffin and the Southern novelist Lillian Smith. This is the art critic Alexander Elliott on Goya. This picture of the two men clobbering each other in the quicksand in the valley is, first of all, a horrible picture, a shocking picture. After that, you begin to see it within the context of this magnificent landscape, all uh, silver, somber, magnificently harmonious thing, and in the midst of it are these two bloody idiots. And you see that if you could only get through to them somehow and tell them what they're doing and how they are denying by their very action the beauty and the harmony and the mystery that surrounds them, they're denying the fact that they're equally children of God, equally brothers, somehow they would uh, 
they would recognize what Goya so poignantly makes you realize in looking at the picture. So I'm a survivor of all that stuff. I have a big mouth, of course, and say things that have been unfashionable at times. I was blacklisted. But Chicago is my town. See, I was born in New York City, came here eight years old, an asthmatic, a sickly child. And I lost my asthma. Soon as I came, my mother had a rooming house here. And when a south wind blew in the stockyards, it cured me of my asthma. I was a sickly child. I had something called mastoiditis. You know what that is? Infection of the ear. And small children back in those days, pre-penicillin days, had, it was very serious. And had bandages around my head, abscesses a lot. I'm always holding my ear. So I see people going down the street, especially young people, holding the hand of their ear. And I says, my God, a resurgence of mastoiditis. But it isn't. It's the C, uh, what's it called? Cell phone. What's it called? To give you an idea where I am. When you say website to me, I think of spiders, you know. You know Robert Bruce was, don't you? Remember the legend of Robert Bruce hiding out the British troops into a cave and the spider spins a web, and as a result of which he didn't disturb it, he escaped. So that's what a website is to me, Robert Bruce. Hardware and software. Hardware pots and pans, kettles, software pillowcases and, and uh, counterpanes and spreads. You see, I don't know the new language. In other words, I am not part of the 21st century. When I was young, I uh, misunderstood the importance of the external world. I believed you can just do what you want and uh, think what you think by yourself. And little by little, I learned that my own ideas was the reflection of things going around me, that my own life was the reflection of a lot of things going on in the world, that I discovered the tightness of the ties which uh, tie me to the whole world. Stud's life, just like Simone de Beauvoir's, has been bound up in the whole world of art and politics. He's been a witness to history. He's documented it, and he's been an active participant in it. His memories and the perspective they provide put the neglected tradition of American liberalism into context. Well, you see, even the word liberal, today, you know, the word liberal is interesting. No one carries a dictionary around with them. The word liberal means tolerant of the opinions of others, free to express your own opinion and accepting, for argument's sake, the opinions of others who differ with yours. That's what Thomas Paine had in mind, who was the most eloquent American visionary of the American Revolution. When he said, reason must never be confused with treason, and if you're not with us, you're against us, you see. And so Thomas Paine would have torn his hair today Listen to this administration and those who back it. And so the word liberal is almost like the word communist during the Cold War. The word Jacobin during the Jefferson Adams 1800 election. Liberal is almost equated with terrorist. The word centrist 
means, what does that mean, centrist? It means, of course, leaning to the right. You're a centrist. If you lean slight to the left, well, not only are you liberal, you got to watch out. A little more to the left, you're a terrorist. But you lean here, oh, he's a conservative. Now, the word conservative itself. See, I, I dislike the word liberal. I dislike the word conservative. I want to conserve the blue of the skies, potable drinking water, the environment, and whatever sanity we have left, in addition to the First Amendment, of course. So I call myself a radical conservative. Radical in that Louis Pasteur was a radical. Samuel Weiss was a radical. Doctors, wash your hands. He wound up in the nuthouse, you know. And so the words themselves, we are perverting our language as well as our thoughts. And so that's the part that gets me. When Hannah Arendt, you know Hannah Arendt, wrote her treatise on German fashion, she called it Eichmann in Jerusalem, but the subtitle, The Banality of Evil, everything we see is demolished, made mush, so serious conversation no longer is there. I like to reverse that and speak of the evil of banality. The banality itself is the evil. And, of course, we're fed that regularly. You listen to that, you can't believe it. What's happened to the American language? What's happened to independent thought? We've always had this problem, but now it's almost absurd. During a recent spat with the Bush apologist Christopher Hitchens, Studs again fused culture and political commentary by describing the President of the United States as a wanton boy. Oh, you, where did you read that? Yeah, a wanton boy swatting flies. Uh, that's in Lear, you know. And uh, something about the wantonness. I forget the scene. Oh, like a wanton... And that, that image impressed me so much. And that's Bush, a wanton boy, except they're not flies. My, my father and my mother were quite sincere in, in believing in um, human dignity in democracy, in the Christian beliefs of brotherhood, fellowship, love, mercy, justice, that sort of thing. And yet, at the same time, they accepted the uh, what I call the ritual of segregation, just as though it were something immovable. And so I would go to church and as a small child, and I was a rather critical small child, and I'd hear about Christian Brotherhood, and of course, uh, none of my little uh, Negro friends were at church. And I would come home and say, why? Why? And always the questions were gently unanswered. Discovery Channel had a poll of four and a half million Americans. Who was the greatest leader, greatest person in American history? Who do you think was number one? Ronald Reagan. And who was number 10, trailing like an old FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And with Reagan, this thing really took place. Not Nixon. Bush is an absurdity. With Reagan, a new phrase coming to be Reagan Democrats. And in, in this Class B actor who would read from cards, we now say, what a brilliant guy. See, that's what's happened to our standards even our aesthetic standards as well. Everything has been affected by it.
even Lewinsky, Monica, making that the issue. You see, you know the phrase, he lied, but nobody died. What if Carsey was Kennedy every day? My favorite president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, even with his polio. I thought that was quite remarkable. Had a mistress named Lucy Mercer. And so, oh, this, but using that, the prurient aspect, making that the key. And here is something far more obscene. It's not the outrageousness of the lies themselves, even proved time and again the untruth. And so, here we are. And here is a long way from Roosevelt, the New Deal, and all that makes up Studs Terkel's political complexion. In an age of neocons and consumerism, I asked Studs whether he felt he still embodied the liberal conscience of the United States, whether his was still the real voice of America. I hope. Let's say this. Who are the people I've chosen in these books? They're of the same social status, economic, religious, political status as others. And so through them, I get an ordinary people so-called, a phrase I dislike because it's patronizing in its air. I hope, and I'm told I did in the one on the Depression, using the Dickens title, Hard Times, or The Good War. My wife, by the way, insisted that the title be in quotes, The Good War. The noun and the adjective are in Congress, don't match. And of course, though it was a necessary one at the time, World War II, of course. I'm told I captured the feeling. I don't know if I do or not. Now, now I'm not too sure. Uh, you mentioned your wife. Can I, can I ask you about your wife and your yeah. life? Those daisies there, the daisies my son brings, and her urn is there too, the urn of her ashes, which I intend to join her and was spread around Bughouse Square. Bughouse Square is like Hyde Park in London. What better resting place for Studs Terkel than Chicago's own Speaker's Corner? But I sensed a diversion, a ready-made response to deflect me from talking about the woman he married back in 1939. I wanted to know more about his life partner, Ida. Well, she looked like my daughter. She was a week older than I was. I married an older woman. We were both born 1912. That was the year the Titanic went down. It was the idea of the Lawrence, Massachusetts strike of those women, 1912. Bread and roses. But she was a social worker during the 30s. So I married up. <laughs> and uh, she was like a dancer. Quite lovely, but also very strong. And uh, she was arrested along with a lot of people during the anti Vietnam protests, and she was, wherever there were gatherings, she was in the demonstrations. And people always came to her, men and women in trouble. For some reason, they came to her. She was quite beautiful, but aside from that, she. Uh, had that empathy that I don't have, quite frankly. Wow. Oh, she played a tremendous role in my life, of course, after 60 years, you know. 
But in any event, uh, around and about, still, I talk to her on occasion. See, here's a use of atheist in the beginning. I say agnostic, which is, I define as a cowardly atheist. Because, well, just, you know, there are no bets to be made, you know. Who's going to pay off whom about hereafter? Who will win the bet? Who'll be around? I'm horsing around now. How do you live without her after? How do I live without? You do, I don't know. You do the best you can. My son, of course, is a wonderful guy. Now, figure being uh, the only child, the mistake of mine, my self-centeredness played a role in that. She wanted at least two. And she's on his own. He's quite wonderful. He's not, quote-unquote, half-assed celebrity like I am. He's a marvelous guy. And I say to him, you're more of a human than I am. He is. He's more tolerant than I am. And so you're hitting certain questions, of course, that I find difficult uh, to answer. In 1999, she missed the 21st century by about a week. And so it's six years. In any event, she was quite remarkable. Where were we? I said what? You don't have empathy. How can you have done what you've done without empathy? Oh, I don't know. I'm a con artist. I'm a good actor. No, I think I'm interested in people. Empathy is also part of my ineptitude mechanically. I use a tape recorder, right? Well, because I'm inept mechanically, I can't drive a car. I can't ride a bike. I can't... And I goof up on mechanical things. And so sometimes I goof, and I, I press the wrong button. And that person, that, quote, ordinary person, looks, and that was real to real in those days, before cassettes. It's not moving. I said, oh, I pressed it. At that moment, that person feels needed by me, to feel needed and that person feels my equal, certainly. So that's a big jump, my own ineptitude. Well, as a matter of fact, I lost Martha Graham. I pressed the wrong button. I lost Michael Redgrave. Pressed the wrong button. I was interviewing Bertrand Russell in North Wales during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was about, he was about 90 at the time. And I wish my wife were here. She would tell you about it. In North Wales, Pendron Diedrath. I wouldn't dare try to spell it, you know. And uh, Russell said, 
Whom have you seen? I mentioned A.S. Neal. Jeffrey A.S. Neal of Summerhill, they were colleagues during the days of progressive education. I say, oh, you met Neal. Have you got it? Yes. And so I have Neal on the tape. And so I'm playing, he's, that's Neal, all right. Yes. And so in my excitement, I forgot to turn that off, you know. And I last minute, I caught myself. And if I had missed up on Russell, I'd have put my head in the oven, you know. So you see, yes, but empathy. My ineptitude plays a tremendous role in it. It really does, you know. I think my vulnerabilities are quite obvious, and sometimes I make more of them than they really are. And so that's where the empathy... Well, the other side of empathy is ego. Is what? Ego. Ego. When you're a national treasure... Oh, boy. And, you're, and you are the story, you have to step back, withdraw. What is interviewing? Listening. It's... It's respect. First of all, that person recognizes that you respect him or her. You respect them because you're listening. Stud's wife makes a reluctant appearance in hard times. He used her to reveal the compassionate side of a harsh welfare system. I persuaded her fine. So we're sitting on the couch. I got the mic as you have to me. I'm interviewing her. I, change, I promise to change her name. Eileen, you'll find her as Eileen Barth in, in uh, Hard Times. So I remember this man, and she gets quite emotional. And he was tall, gray-haired, railroad man. Had nothing. He and his little grandchild lived in this apartment. It was bare. And then our supervisor said one day, you've got to look into the closet of these people, into the closets. I says, look into their closets. I can't do that. Well, it's your job or not. We're looking to the... And so she comes to see this guy, and it's a bare apartment, a little girl. Uh, she says, I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm under orders. And now she's on the couch, and she's starting to get a little emotional. And I'm just listening. And then I said to him, I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm under orders to look into your closet. You're looking into my closet? What, of course. And he looked into the closet, and it was bare. And then she bursts, and she suppresses a sob. And then she says, he was so humiliated. And then she adds, and I was too. And now she's sobbing. One thing I said, this is great. This is fantastic. She says, you son of a bitch. I mean, I, I can't top that story. And so you'll find Eileen Barth in it. That's my wife. But you see, the part about me is, I got to do it. What are some of the things that the guys worry about? I don't know. They worry about what's going to happen to you when you grow older? You're born to die, that's all. You were born to die? Yeah. What about in between the time you're born and the time you die? An anonymous youth and a Chicago social worker, as they appeared in Born to Live. Where did you go I, to school? I, school I, of Economics? No. No, no. I studied music. Huh? I studied music. Oh, did you? Yeah. What, jazz or classical? Uh, classical. 
You did? I'll be damned. So I was with a radio station in Chicago called WFMT. Quite a remarkable station, by the way. You know, it's classical music and sometimes avant-garde classical music, as well as folk and spirituals and all. It was a great experience me being on that. But that station represented to me because the letters came not just from librarians or teachers. It came from a truck driver or a waitress. Heard something. From that they heard other things. I maintain if people heard Mozart often enough or Beethoven or Bach often enough their own taste would be a, but we instead we have precisely again the evil of banality that's the thing I don't ever intend to make my peace with such a world the novelist James Baldwin there's something much more important than Cadillacs widget airs and uh, IBM machines you know and it terrifies me you know I always wonder is this what you think the country is for you know and do you think this is really what I came here and suffered and died for you know a lousy Cadillac Oh, I won't. I, I must admit, I'm deeply impressed by people who step out and do something and say something, whatever dreaming they would do it, you know. Well, in hope, I have these people I call the prophetic minority that have always spoken out. It's, I got the title, Hope Dies Last, from a Mexican farm worker, Jesse De La Cruz who had worked with Cesar Chavez in organizing the farm workers. And one day she said, we have a saying in Spanish when things look bleak, Esperanza muera al último, hope dies last. As that became a theme, and so I got in at all kinds of people, some you might recognize, some not, who speak out. The effort, it seems to me, is to, if you can examine and face your life, you can discover the terms in which you're connected to other lives. And they can discover, too, the terms in which they're connected to other people. There's something uncanny about Studd's historical connections. Like Zelig, he appears alongside the key figures in American 20th century history. It's uncanny and sometimes ironic. And I almost worked for the FBI as a fingerprint classifier. That means a civil service job, nine to five. Nothing to do with FBI, but it was a job. And so we took this exam and passed. And I, I'm going to use that in my memoir. But they sent me my dossier, but the bastards cut out 150 pages that I need. It's funny as hell, in which I'm passed by the bureau chief of Chicago, and then Hoover is saying to his John Edgar Hoover, who called himself director, he likes to call the director. He's put Lewis Turkle on the payroll, 1460 a year, second lowest there is, as fingerprint classifier. And then comes in my dossier, so a name crossed out, Professor UC Law School, where I spoke only once in my three years there, because I didn't care for Lord. And I remember it was a course in real property, and the professor deep voice, he called on me suddenly. I had no idea, so I simply said, this is no court of equity, it's court of iniquity, you know. And he said, not very funny, zero. It had to be he who said, slovenly, loudmouthed Jew. So Hoover's 
next note to take him off the payroll. He's not our type of boy. And that's funny, but it's true. But I, those things are missing. Another episode that will fuel Studd's memoirs, if he gets round to them, relates to his TV show, Studd's Place. This was a big hit until the paranoia of the McCarthy era crept onto the set. One day, Studs was visited during rehearsals by a man in a suit, concerned about his political allegiances. There are all these petitions, and your name is right near the top. Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee. Committee to Save So-and-So. Committee of Civil Rights. I says, yeah. He says, don't you know that communists were behind these petitions. And that's when I get kind of cute. I said, suppose communists come out against cancer. Do we have to automatically come out for cancer? He's, that is not very funny. So they finally agree that they're going to drop the program. So I'm dropped. Now, when I was a disc jockey, I played a lot of Mahalia Jackson records when she was unknown to the white public. The black people knew of Mahalia. But the whites, I was the white disc jockey, and Mahalia and I became very close. And now I'm out of a job, and Mahalia is now internationally known. And so CBS, they offer her a network radio show on Friday with a live audience. She says, I'll do it if Studs Terkel is the host of it, MC. And they say, oh, they, but they agree. Okay, so we're doing it. And the people come in, I get, you know, about six... The show goes on 7 o'clock Chicago time, 8 o'clock New York time, on the network. And it's an easy show to do with Mahalia and me and the accompanist, Mildred Falls. And then one day during dress rehearsal, about a half hour before the audience comes in, another guy comes in from New York, CBS. He says, could you sign this, Mr. Turco, pro forma? And it's a loyalty oath. I said, no, well, of course not. I am an American. I know that. My A is my A, and A is my... I learned that from the Quakers. And he says, you guys know, so Mahalia hears this conversation. And she's, is that what I think it is, baby? I says, yeah. Oh, man, you always would say, Studs, you got such a big mouth, you should have been a preacher. And so she says, yeah, that's what I think it is. And so finally... She just says to the guy, you tell those people in New York, if they fire Stretch Turkle, to find another Mahalia Jackson. You know what happened? Nothing happened. We ran through. What does it prove? Somebody said no to the official word. Mahalia said no. No one said no to McCarthy and Hoover except John Henry Falk, a Texas storyteller friend of mine, who finally broke the blacklist. A child learns how to talk, and they talk all the time. And the fact is, let's face it, printing was invented, and people, a lot of people forgot how to tell stories. You don't need to tell stories to your children at night. You buy them a 25-cent book at the local drugstore, or, or buy them a phonograph record, or switch on the radio or TV. You don't have to use your brains anymore. You don't have to make music, obviously. You don't have to be an athlete anymore. Uh, you turn on the TV and watch the best athletes in the world. Watch them use their muscles, and you sit back and grow a pot belly. 
You don't need to be witty anymore. You turn on the TV and watch an expert be witty. You don't need to be witty anymore. And, of course, the crowning shame of it all is for man and wife sit back and watch the expert lover make, pretend to make love on this little screen there. The folk singer Pete Seeger recorded for Born to Live, Studs Terkel's documentary of life and death after Hiroshima. Studs has spent a lifetime interviewing people, recording their testimonies, listening to their stories, and then preserving them in landmark books. And some people say, look at that guy, a tape recorder. Uh, he's no writer. Well, maybe so. So a guy using a typewriter, when the quilt pen was always used, what kind of writer is that? Use a typewriter. And when the quilt pen came along, the caveman said, what kind of writing is that? Instead of engraving on walls, you see. And so what I do is I try to get as much what that person really had in mind. You know, and editing, editing is tremendous. How can you edit something without destroying the intent of that person or hamper it in any way? And so you be careful. That must be it. Sometimes you keep you cut out my question sometimes, so it's like a soliloquy. I keep the questions in when there's, it has a humorous aspect to it or a whimsical aspect or something revelatory that wouldn't be there or something that connects two seemingly unrelated things. Outside of that, I eliminate myself, too. All this pricks my professional curiosity. I wanted to know more about what it is that gets studs out of bed each day, back behind the microphone, back at the typewriter. You see, you just hit the key word. It's curiosity, intellectual curiosity. That's, you, you know, my epitaph will be, curiosity did not kill this cat. That's my epitaph. Obviously, it's curiosity. James Cameron, his last column for The Guardian, I think, he worked for all kinds of papers. He was dying. And in the last four words of his column, hope subsides, but curiosity remains. I think I would be right to say that we just lost the hope. We, we tried to, we tried to uh, convince ourselves that, that we hoped, but we, we really didn't. We, I couldn't imagine that I could lie in a bed again, that I would die like a normal human being. A former inmate of the Ravensbrück concentration camp. When are you going to retire? When do I tend to retire? When I'm toes up, of course. If I retired, I die. Nine years ago, I had a quintuple bypass. I was a new man. And then one day, I go down the stairs, and I stumbled and fell, and did a tour jeté, sort of, as though choreographed, not by Balanchine, by Bob Fosse, because it was jazzy, and, it, and my head hit the siding, and I broke my neck. So I lay there, and so... They fixed two parts, didn't fix the last. And then, three weeks ago, I had a valve changed. So I'm here only three weeks away from that. And I've come through that. So uh, how much more years? That's, well, believe it or not, you got at least four more years. I said, no, no. Well, I, the memoir, I hope, if I can find all this stuff, 
And when the member, that's it. Because to retire, I don't know what the word means, because I wouldn't mind sort of relaxing and taking it easy at the age of 98 or so. No, I, I give myself two more years. At 95, not bad. It's a nice round figure. Well, as it is, here I am, deaf. Describe what you're wearing for me. The what? Describe what you're wearing. My check red shirt and red socks. That's my... I don't know why I liked it. I saw one guy wearing it. He looked pretty good. And so that's what did it. Garibaldi. Garibaldi and his red... I always dramatize things. I always over-romanticize things. But I like the idea of red socks and red chick shirt. And so that's associated with me, too. So that's pretty much part of the story. Next time, we'll have a sequel to it. So we got to go... reputed to have said by Churchill, why would anyone want to live to be 90? And he is said to have said, everybody was 89. Two months after my first encounter with Studs Terkel, I had a chance to record that sequel. He seemed quieter, perhaps more tired, but equally ready to talk, which was good, as I'd not asked everything I'd wanted to on the previous occasion. For instance, about his name. Studs. My name is Louis, L-O-U-I-S. And in 1934, 35, a book came out, The Young Manhood of Studs Lonergan, by James T. Farrell. And it was the first such book about Chicago, or about a city that could capture the street dialogue. In this case, it was South Side Irish. William Lonergan, his name was. You know, the, the relationship of reality and theater were one at the time. It was a liberal left group in all these. Clifford Odette's play, Waiting for Lefty, a strike. It was, it was an, a, a cab driver strike, just about the time the cab drivers were organizing. And so I was in that, and there were several other guys in the cast named Louie. So I had the book Stud Lonigan, Young Man, and I liked it so much. He called me studs. And so I did my first book way back on jazz. It was a book for young people, basically. The woman insisted to use the name of studs. And so that's how it became. Does anyone call you Louis now? Oh, my wife always called me Louis. Louis? She did. And a couple of old friends, hey, Louis. And they almost did it deliberately, you know. But outside of that, no. And by the way, did you see the Tribune editorial on me? A Tribune editorial. Uh, Studs is about to press a newspaper cutting into my hand. No, two weeks ago. No, no, I haven't. It was fantastic. It's called In Praise of Studs. I hope I got it somewhere. Just give it to you. Maybe I have it here. 
This may be it. <clears throat> Along with his red socks and red check shirt, this is part of the Turkle mythology. His tribune last Sunday. Right here, look at that. You, you, you want it? Can I? Yeah, well, I'll get another copy. You've got a, a real Turkle-esque moment. Is, is Studs Turkle a character that you play? Is he someone you... I mean, is, there, is, is Louis still around somewhere? I'm, am I playing a character, is what you're saying? I find it difficult to answer, because it's... I may be. Now, am I playing like a gravelly boy Chicago figure? Well, I have a gravelly voice, and I am Chicago. So I don't know whether I'm acting or not. You're asking a good question. By this time, it's so much part of my makeup that I don't know if I am or not. Am I playing a character? I don't... I say no, but I could be dead wrong. Others say, of course you are. As a public figure, he's played the role of advocate for the small guy for the oppressed, the inarticulate, for those unjustly treated by power or opinion, giving a voice to humanity in a century that was traumatised by war, by the Holocaust, and notably for studs, by the dropping of the atomic bomb. If I say I'm wrong about the innate decency in working people, innate intelligence, then all my books can be tossed into the ash can. They're not worth anything because they're based upon untruth. I still feel that. That is, I felt that, provided, and there's a big proviso here, of course there's a basic decency in people. There's a basic rottenness as well. We know that. And in fact, it could go either way. It's to what angel is most appealed to. And the last gift that nature has given us, a very extraordinary one, a very dangerous one, is the Arum Boom. The Irish playwright, Sean O'Casey. Nature through the Arum Boom says, here you are, poor of darkness, or the poor of light, choose what you wish. You know who's responsible, don't you? Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, who is the great humanist, the great heart of the 20th century. But Albert Einstein is responsible with his theory of relativity, and then a woman in Sweden named Lisa Meitner works on it. And a guy in Denmark named Niels Bohr works on it. And a guy in Chicago, uh, Fermi, Enrico Fermi, splits the atom behind the football fields of my alma mater in Chicago. But in any event, after him, we come to Los Alamos, Alamogordo, and J. Robert Oppenheimer. And finally, a guy flies a plane, a guy named Paul Tibbetts, his plane is named after his mother, Enola Gay, his mother, and knocks off 100,000 Japanese men, women, kids on a beautiful Sunday, August morning. Miyoko Harubasa, a survivor of Hiroshima. They were looking up at, in the sky, trying to spot the airplane. Mm. But, but, and then she thought that there was a very big flash in the sky, so she uh, 
hit her face on the ground. そうすると、あのー、その瞬間に飛ばされたような気がします。で飛ばそして私の全身を見ますとパンティ一枚残っていてそして今ケロイドとして残っていたところは皮膚が,スカ皮膚が50センチぐらい下がっておりました。すると友達が顔だけ海水から顔だけ出して「お母さん助けてくれお母さん助けてくれ」と言って泣き叫んでおりました We can go either way. Now, Einstein, one of the last things he said, he never dreamed, by the way, that we'd be dropped on Nagasaki. He never dreamed of it. He thought we'd be dropped in some uninhabitable area and the Japanese would surrender. So, Einstein, when he heard that they were dropped on humans, tore his hair, you know. And then he said, If there's a third war, well, of course, we're in one now, but he's assuming a huge world one. <laughs> but if there is one, he doesn't know what the weapons will be, but he knows what the weapons will be for World War IV sticks and stones. So, what is he saying? He's saying, we speak of our ancestors, prehistoric man, Neanderthal man, as our ancestors. But he's speaking of them, the Neo Neanderthals. Of course, I think they're among us now, too. We don't use the term. But Neo Neanderthals, as our children's children, as our descendants, and not ancestors. In other words, a wiping out, not only of the world physically, but of the world psychically, poetically, in every way. And so. We have our grand, 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 grandchildren coming out of caves. There lies before us, if we choose, continual progress in happiness, knowledge, and wisdom. The philosopher Bertrand Russell. Shall we instead choose death? Because we cannot forget our quarrels. We appeal as human beings to human beings. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. And now we come to Tony Blair. He's the butler, he's Jeeves, to our Bertie Wooster. The only difficulty, Jeeves had some dignity. This guy has nothing. He's a footman, really. In the light of the seismic traumas of the last century, it's not hard to sympathize with Studd's contempt for the failings of our politicians. To him, they lack stature, they lack culture, they lack vision, and they lack humanity. Somehow, though, he remains impervious to despair. He called a recent book, Hope Dies Last. See, without hope, there's got to be despair. But without hope, what is that despair? It says, they've won, we've lost, or the world 
This is the way the world will end. Not with a bang, nor with a whimper. Not even a whimper. It won't even end with a fart. You know, when you think about it, you know. Have you personally felt despair in your life? Or have you always been optimistic? I don't know. See, here again, you're talking to a guy who's a, a faker. Some extent. No, faking emotions. I, I had hiding. Uh, well, my, when my wife died, I, uh, when I knew he was... It was a personal despair. But despair about the world, not really, not during World War II. And then when Hiroshima came, no, I'm going to confess to it. No. I was among the great many who said, well, good, the war is over. But there were the others who were far ahead of me, the Quakers, for example. I condemn it now, you know. And it's really a privilege to be born in this age, the most critical in the whole history of mankind. The writer Arthur C. Clarke. I remember the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, that curse has been visited on us, but I don't think it really is a curse. It's a privilege. It's a privilege also to sit and talk with Studs Terkel. It's like being in the presence of a wise-cracking encyclopedia, a talking history book of the events that forged our interesting times. He was there. He listened, he taped. And if he makes it to a nice round 95, you can expect to see it all in his memoirs. I gotta get that goddamn dossier. Some funny stuff. One is I introduced Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson, whom I knew, ran a big thing here while Martin Luther King was in Chicago, where he didn't do too well. And here he also had rocks thrown at him. Never were rocks thrown up in Jackson, Mississippi. But anyway, this is a big event. And so Mahalia insists that I introduce Martin Luther King. There were other people there, senators. She wanted me to do it. And so I introduced King. It was pretty good introduction. But anyway, here comes the FBI. Main speakers, Martin Luther King, Jr., Reverend Daniel Catwell, and Studs Turkle, communist. So they promoted me. Maybe a communist, but also main speaker. So I thought that was a promotion on their part. Well, I found life an enjoyable, enchanting, active, and sometimes a terrifying experience. And I've enjoyed it completely. A lament in one ear, maybe, we're always a song in the other. And to me, life is simply an invitation to live. Everybody says to me, you're looking great. You know that it's no longer seven stages of uh, melancholy course. No, it's three stages. Youth, middle age, and you're looking great. Has the world been a stage for you? Is that what it is? The world been a stage... Am I a ham, is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I suppose it has. I'm always acting, you know. When you finally check out... Yeah. Are you vain enough to want to be remembered in a certain way, for a certain contribution? Well, of course, there's a vanity here. Live the full... As full of life as you could. And uh, now and then, on certain occasions, 
had guts to speak out. Had occasion, maybe I could have and didn't. No, I think there are places I spoke out where I shouldn't have, and I didn't, perhaps where I should have. And then there's another question, much more personal, hurting people. Being aware of it and not being aware of it. I think casually, but hurting people close to me, without giving it a thought at the moment, you know. And so, rueful, sure. You know, regrets, sure. Good things, yeah. I'd say it evens itself out. And so when I check out, I use the word check out, because that's a hotel word. And I was raised in a hotel, I said, check out time. And when I check out, I'll have my ashes intermingled with hers, you know. She was very strong, by the way. And she's very delicate. There's a picture over there, uh, like dancer-like. She, she, before she died, she said, why do I still feel like a girl? You know what she said. A neighbor across the way saw her about a week before she died in her jeans picking out weeds here. She says, who's that girl across the way? Oh, it's Ida. Yeah. And so, yeah. Sixty years, that's pretty good. But you could say, I did the best I can with whatever, whatever limited abilities I may have. So may we leave in the world a little more truth, a little more justice, a little more beauty than would have been there had we not loved the world enough to quarrel with it for what it is not, but still could be. And that's about the ticket. Thanks, Duds. I thank you. That's a good one. Great. That's the last touch. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Now. One more day. Amen. Studs Terkel, The Last Touch, was written and presented by Alan Hall. The program includes excerpts from the 1965 WFMT production Born to Live Hiroshima, music by Mahalia Jackson, and interviews recorded with Studs Terkel at his Chicago home in 2005. Studs Terkel, The Last Touch, is a Falling Tree production. We have a link to Falling Tree Productions on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can hear more of Alan's work, more of ReSound, and hundreds of great documentaries from around the world. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.